Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. In our interviews with David Bakavoy, we talked about the historical Jesus. We talked about Bart Ehrman in some of the studies and research and books published that essentially tear down the divine Christ. In our interview with Brother Bakavoy, we talk at length about these criticisms with David offering a middle way, a way to see some of the criticisms that are out there and still yet see the divine Christ. I also wanted to make sure that we offered a wide array and a spectrum of of beliefs on this issue so that a member of the church could take in all the information and recognize that combining scholars like David Bakavoy and N.T. Wright, who a four-part series will follow here, that there are plenty of ways to reconcile scholars like the view of Bart Ehrman and others who tear down the divine Jesus and see that there is plenty of room for Christ to still be the Son of God and the Savior and Redeemer of the world. So now on to our four-part series of N.T. Wright, where he discusses the historical Jesus. Good evening, and uh, thank you for your welcome, and thank you to the C.S. Lewis Institute, and particularly to Tom Terrence and his colleagues for the welcome and hospitality that my wife and I have been enjoying. It seems no time at all since we were here last year. I guess it's just under a year, in fact, but it's gone extremely quickly. And here I am finding myself back in this pulpit in in this lovely church. And thank you, too, to the Falls Church. Uh, It's good to be back with you, and I'm looking forward to being here indeed on Sunday morning as well. Uh, I've been asked to speak about Jesus in his historical context, and in particular in relation, to begin with at least, to some of the discussions and disputes that have been going on in the public domain, in Time magazine and goodness knows where else. When Tom Tarrant asked me last year if I would come back and do this, I said, but I haven't got anything new to say about Jesus. And Tom has just read out a list of various books that over the last few years I've been trying to say things about Jesus in, and he assured me that not all of you would have read all the books. I, so uh, so I, I, I am summarizing and compressing, and at every point I could easily put in footnotes saying, if you want to know more about this, go and read chapter such and such. So browse to your heart's content in the bookstall and maybe even buy and read. You never know, you might learn something to your advantage. But I've been asked particularly in beginning this series of four lectures to talk under this title, What's the Problem with Jesus? And every time I've seen that on the poster or in my own notes, I want to say there's no problem with Jesus at all. (laughs) There's there's nothing wrong with Jesus. Uh, And I want to quote Shakespeare, The fault, dear Brutus, is not with our stars but with ourselves. 
Uh, the problem is not with Jesus himself. The problem is who we are and what we as a culture and often as scholars and often, God help us, as Christians have done to belittle Jesus, to put him into our little boxes, to make him fit our little schemes, to make him serve our small-scale purposes. And uh, ordinary Christians have done that and sometimes have to repent and change. Scholars do it, and it's much harder, of course, for scholars to repent because they're notoriously hard-hearted and bull-headed creatures, speaking as one. And uh, so somehow we have to get through all these problems which are about us in order constantly to be re-confronted with the real Jesus, the true Jesus, the genuinely historical Jesus. Uh, One runs out of ways of saying that, but I hope that if you don't know what I mean by that phrase, you will by the time we're done, at least by tomorrow lunchtime. And I want in uh, what I'm going to say this evening to talk for about um, 40 minutes or so on two subjects in particular and then leave a few minutes for questions. And I know it's difficult in a forum like this to take questions, but there is the possibility of a roving microphone, so some of you at least can air some uh, some questions. And uh, then we'll have a break and then we'll come back and do some more solidly historical reconstruction in the second half this evening. But what I want to do in this first lecture is to talk about these two things. First, uh, a bit about where we've come in questing for Jesus in historical scholarship over the last 200 years, with particular reference, as I have been asked to do, to the work of the group that has been called the Jesus Seminar, And I and others have written critiques of that elsewhere, and I shall simply be summarizing that critique. And then the second thing that I want to do in this first lecture is to talk about some of the distorting lenses that there are in our culture at the moment as we try to come to terms with Jesus, the different things that we find in our uh, mental spectacles and cultural spectacles, which are actually making it difficult for us to get in touch with who Jesus really was. So first, some questions about the quest for the historical Jesus. That phrase, the quest for the historical Jesus, was made famous by the translators of Albert Schweitzer's famous work, which went under that title when it was put into English about a 100 years ago. And Schweitzer, one of the great human beings of the 20th century, musician extraordinary, medical missionary extraordinary, historian, philosopher, Uh, New Testament scholar, etc. Schweitzer chronicled the work that had been done in Germany particularly, but also in France, through the 19th century to, to try to put Jesus in his historical context. And he had great fun in showing how one scholar after another had brought his presuppositions of cultural and philosophical baggage to bear on Jesus and had allowed those presuppositions to distort history. And Schweitzer, of course, then boldly decided that he was going to tell us what Jesus was really like. And, of course, Schweitzer must have been aware that he himself was not without presuppositions, but he nevertheless painted a portrait of Jesus, which was so stunning, so stark and dramatic, that it effectively shut everybody up for about 50 years. People reeled back 
from Schweitzer's portrait and thought, and you can see this in the scholarly and popular literature that came after Schweitzer, if that's really what you find when you start doing history on Jesus, we better stop doing history so that we can go on with doing church the way we've always done it. Because Schweitzer's portrait was of Jesus, the apocalyptic visionary, the wild-eyed, wild-haired man declaring that the world was about to come to an end, that everything was uh, going to, to, to be blown away, and that the only thing to do was now to trust God and that there would be some way through to God's new age, who, who knew how. And so Schweitzer put an end to a hundred years in which people have been trying to make Jesus this way or that, either a Jewish revolutionary, that was a very popular idea which still comes back in various guises, or a teacher of great religious truths, that is still extremely popular in many quarters. Schweitzer said, no, that just doesn't fit the first century. First century Jews would not have downed tools and gone off into the wilderness to follow somebody who was simply teaching a few great timeless abstract truths. But nor was he, Jesus that is, the revolutionary that so many had, had, had thought. Schweitzer put Jesus into the context of the Jewish culture of expecting that God was going to do something dramatic any day now. And the dramatic thing, the coming of the kingdom, everything was going to be different, perhaps even the end of the space-time universe as we knew it. And as I say... People in churches in Germany, in France, in Britain, in America looked at Schweitzer's Jesus and said this is a very impressive work, but it isn't going to help us in our preaching, in our living. It just won't do. So for about 50 years, there was really very little serious scholarly study of Jesus. And some of the great scholars in the first half of the 20th century spent their energies in studying the early church instead and used the Gospels not so much as a window back onto Jesus, but as a way of talking about the groups in the early church who told those stories, who preached those little sermons, who used those stories in their catechesis, their instruction of new converts, and so on. But then after the Second World War, a new attempt was made which self-consciously called itself the New Quest, it's always a mistake to label anything new because it very quickly acquires a sell-by date and it very quickly turns out that the sell-by date was actually a few years ago. Um, my youngest son went for five years to a school called New College School in Oxford which was founded in the 13th century. It's not, it's not quite as new as it used to be. Uh, and the new quest now is not quite as new as it used to be. The new quest was started principally through the energy of one of the great German New Testament scholars of the second half of the 20th century, Ernst Käsemann, Käsemann who was professor in Tübingen in South Germany for many years. And Käsemann insisted that you had to find out about who Jesus was, difficult though it would be historically, because if you didn't do so, the church could invent a Jesus to suit its own predispositions and aims and agendas. And Kazeman had a case in point that was particularly poignant for him, because Kazeman had been a member of the Confessing Church under the Third Reich in Germany in the 1930s, and Kazeman had been imprisoned by the Nazis for his fearless work uh, uh, to preach the gospel of Jesus over against the gospel of Adolf Hitler. 
And Kaiserman realized that one of the reasons why so many Germans had been duped by Hitler was that they had forgotten that you needed to know who Jesus was. So when people came along who told you that Jesus was actually not even Jewish and Jesus was certainly opposed to all things Jewish and therefore it was a good thing to get rid of the Jews, wasn't it, in Germany in the 1930s? Kaiserman saw that many people in the church had no way of answering that. And so he said, we must do serious work on Jesus, otherwise the witness of the church will fail. That was a pretty good reason. There are actually many other good reasons as well for studying Jesus, but it remains the case that unless you are prepared in every generation, I believe, to do the hard work of saying we need to be sure we're not fooling ourselves about who Jesus really was, then the church can either become just cozy and invent a Jesus who serves its own interests, or the church can actually become radically heretical and imagine a Jesus who is taking it way off into left field somewhere. However, because for half a century people had said it's very difficult to know about Jesus, the new quest was burdened with questions of method, questions of how do we do this, what sort of documents are the Gospels, how can we properly study them, what are the controls, what are the criteria. And as any ancient historian will tell you, it's actually very difficult to be absolutely sure of almost anything in ancient history. There are certain big facts and big dates like the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, but there is not a lot of information about the first century AD. My oldest son is a a modern historian, particularly of France in the 19th and 20th century, and he is overburdened with far too much information. He goes off to archives in Paris where there are yards and yards of cover of newspapers, every one of which might have something relevant to his topic. And I don't know whether I'm jealous of him or not. I've got about two bookshelves which contain all the relevant texts for my particular subject. And that's it. You can read them in a matter of a few months. And I often wish there was more. So there's plenty of room in ancient history for moving the counters this way and that and saying maybe they fit this way, maybe they fit that way. And the new quest through the 1950s and 1960s did a lot of moving of counters around and also a lot of discussing of what it would mean if we moved counters around. Um, But it didn't actually come up with any very stunning or striking fresh hypotheses about who Jesus really was. There are some significant books from that period, um, not least actually the work of one of the great Dutch Roman Catholic scholars of this last generation, Edward Skillebeck's. Um, I won't try and spell that word at this time of night, but you'll see him in my bibliography. Um, And uh, I think it's fair to say that the 50s and 60s did do some ground clearing, but hadn't actually got very far. However, in the 1970s and 1980s, there's a movement which I have labeled the third quest. Some of you may have heard that phrase and wonder what it refers to. Well, the old quest for the historical Jesus, this is a scholar's fiction, of course. You, you can't actually periodize things this easily, but it's just a kind of mnemonic way of reminding yourself roughly what's going on. The old quest was the one that Albert Schweitzer wrote about, basically in the late 18th and then through the 19th century. And then after the period period when there wasn't too much scholarly work done on it, the new quest, or the second quest, was the one which was started again by Ernst Kesemann in the 1950s, 
And then uh, because there was a significantly new move in the 70s and 80s, I thought it was a sensible thing to call it the third quest. I discovered that that has become controversial in some circles, but that's what I meant by it. What was different about the third quest? Well, since the Second World War, scholarship was inundated with new studies of first century Judaism. For a start, we had the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's very rare in ancient historical scholarship that you suddenly get an entire library of material to work with. Some of it's very complicated to work with, but it sheds a very bright light on a small but significant area of first century Judaism. So suddenly we know a lot more about how some Jews at least were reading their Bibles and interpreting them and looking for Messiah figures and things like that. So there's a whole lot more energy gone into that. And there's been all sorts of other work, fresh editions of the great Jewish historian Josephus and the philosopher Philo, fresh work in that area, fresh work on the rabbis, the successors of the Pharisees, who preserved a lot of traditions, some of which may well have been around in the first century. So there's a lot of work gone on on first century Judaism. And once we cleared out of our minds as scholars the idea that Jesus really stood over against Judaism, and once we decide that actually, of course, Jesus was a first century Jew and that's where he belonged, then the chase was on to say what sort of a first century Jew was Jesus. There's a very interesting shift in scholarship. In 1973, the great Jewish scholar Geza Vermesh, V-E-R-M-E-S, who worked for most of his scholarly life in Oxford, and I was a junior colleague of his for some years, Geza Vermesh published his book called Jesus the Jew. Now, in 1973, when that was published, that title was shocking. People looked and said, Jesus was a Jew. Surely Jesus was was a Christian. And then they (laughs) scratched their heads and said, well, but wait a minute. This is peculiar. What was Jesus? And the answer is, of course he was a Jew. But people hadn't actually put it like that so bluntly or not for a long time or not so sharply in the forefront of public life. And so from then on, most of the books about Jesus produced by serious scholars were variations on the theme of Jesus the Jew. Vermesh's own theories about what sort of a Jewish Jesus Jesus might have been haven't actually met with wide following except in some popular quarters in Britain and possibly elsewhere. But the floodgates were open and some of the great North American Jesus scholars, like the late Ben Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R, and the still happily with us Ed Sanders from Duke University, have written major works on Jesus, putting him sensitively and intelligently into his Jewish context, although with all sorts of controversial and difficult bits where they're not quite sure if the evidence goes this way or goes that way. So there was a lot done through the 70s and 80s, which I labeled the third quest, and that's where I locate my own work, though with many differences of opinion on particular issues. But around the time that that was just reaching its height in the mid-80s with the work of Ed Sanders, this new movement was started called the Jesus Seminar, which undertook, among other things, to tell the American public who Jesus was and what it was all about. 
I need to back up a little and tell you just some of the history of the Jesus Seminar because it's been splashed all over your news magazines and uh, I should say this is a particularly American thing. From time to time, there's a small headline on an inside page somewhere in the UK or in Europe about it, but nobody in the UK or Europe is as interested in it as people in America. This itself is an interesting phenomenon which I could happily lecture to you about on another occasion as to why America is interested in flaky Jesus pictures and the rest of us aren't. Um, it's, a, it's a very interesting subject. Anyway, around the mid-1980s, a scholar who had been uh, a well-known New Testament scholar in North America called Robert Funk uh, called together a group of other New Testament scholars um, from America and some from Canada and quickly developed a profile for what they were doing, which was that they were scholars who were going to work fearlessly on all the Jesus material, not just in the canonical Gospels, but any scraps of information from the rest of the ancient world and other so-called heretical or non-canonical materials as well. And they were going to come out of their dusty libraries, they said. They were going to come out of their scholarly closets and tell the general public what the scholars were actually saying about Jesus. And there's a lot of rhetoric that they came up with down that line. We were going to tell you, they said, the honest truth. We're not going to hide from you the sharp-edged conclusions that we reach. And their method of proceeding was to take the material in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and also in the so-called Gospel of Thomas, and the many other scraps of information about Jesus which are collected in various papyri over the succeeding, uh, the succeeding centuries. And to isolate individual sayings and then to break those sayings down, sayings of Jesus, into their component parts and then in their meetings to discuss one by one those component parts of the sayings and to vote as to whether they thought they were authentic or not, whether they thought Jesus really said this or not. And this is perhaps the most famous thing about the Jesus Seminar, that they voted with little billiard balls, putting them into little sacks, and the billiard balls were four colors, red and pink and gray and black, color-coded for red meaning certainly authentic, pink meaning quite possibly authentic to Jesus, gray meaning well maybe but we're not so sure and we think probably not, and black meaning no, Jesus did not say this, this was made up by somebody in the early church. And they worked on this for about seven or eight years and produced in 1993 a book called, provocatively, The Five Gospels, that was Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Thomas, with the gospel material, the sayings of Jesus, color-coded according to how the voting went. Actually, the voting was quite complicated. I'll say something about that just in a moment. But it turned out that according to their voting, and this was the big headline-catching thing, only about 20% of what the Gospels say Jesus said, according to them, Jesus in fact said. And Robert Funk then, in the following three or four years, produced his own book about Jesus, supposedly on the basis of the findings of the Jesus Seminar, though he didn't always go with what they'd voted. And his book was called Honest to Jesus, which was a deliberate echo of John A.T. Robinson's famous book from 1963, Honest to God, with this word honest doing this job of saying by implication, 
everybody else is messing around and not telling you the truth, but I'm going to come out and be bold and wave the flag and tell it like it really is. And that collection of books, which then resulted, they produced other things as well about the deeds of Jesus similarly, was what kept the newsprint uh, happy and Time magazine and Newsweek and so on. And again and again, coming up to Christmas or coming up to Easter, they would run cover stories about Jesus and say, scholars now say Jesus didn't rise from the dead, or scholars say Jesus didn't say half of the Lord's Prayer or whatever. Now, a few quick comments on this. And in my book, Jesus and the Victory of God, chapter 2, I've got a more sustained critique annotated. So if you want to read this stuff up, that's one of the places where it is. First comment about the Jesus Seminar. The Jesus Seminar, which has now more or less run its course, I think Funk still has a group around him who meet, um, but they've now worked through the Gospels, and they're supposedly talking about uh, later Christianity and discussing that, but it stopped being high profile in the same way. Um, The initial group that Funk collected contained a lot of well-known, high-profile scholars, some of the best-known, and uh, two of them are actually good personal friends of mine, Marcus Borg, with whom I wrote a dialogue book a few years ago called The Meaning of Jesus, Two Visions, Walter Wink, who has done hugely significant work on the nature of power in the New Testament and the principalities and powers and what that means for us today, Bruce Chilton, who is a fine scholar of much of the Judaic background, and one of the most entertaining and engaging, though I find also scholarly infuriating uh, uh, scholars in North America, Dominic Crossan, whose name will be familiar to many of you, and who I've done debates with um, over many years now. And lots of less well-known scholars, but none the worse for that, um, forming this group. But what they never say, and what they don't want you to, to be reminded of, is that most mainstream North American Jesus scholars, both Catholic and Protestant and atheist and Jew, avoided the Jesus seminar from the beginning and never had anything to do with it all the way through. Ed Sanders, J.P. Meyer, who now teaches in Notre Dame, the late Ben Meyer, who I mentioned, Jim Charlesworth from Princeton, Richard Horsley from Boston, Paula Fredrickson also from Boston. So you could go on, Luke Johnson, Craig Evans, Joe Fitzmeyer, Dale Allison. Some of you won't know any of these names. Some of you will know some of them. Those of you who know the New Testament scholarly world will know these are big-name scholars who are writing serious works about Jesus in his historical context, who all of whom would not touch the Jesus seminar, would not want to be involved in it. Partly because they saw some of the agendas that it had, partly because they looked at its method and said that's not the way to do history. That is simply not how ancient history gets itself done. That's my first comment. And you see, this wouldn't matter. Any group of scholars is free to meet, talk, publish, do what they like, except for the fact that the rhetoric of the group was always, we are the scholars who are telling you the results. And in fact, most of the best-known scholars in the field held aloof from it. That's the first point. Second point is 
They did a wonderful job, did the Jesus Seminar, on publishing new editions of lots of the hard-to-find extra-canonical sources, not only Thomas, but the Gospel of the Egyptians, uh, the Gospel of the Hebrews, lots of other so-called Gospels which exist in little papyrus fragments and which, until their work, were often quite difficult to get copies of for scholars to study. You had to go down to the library stacks and often they were old editions and not in very good shape. So they did us all a service because I want to make it quite clear that as a first century historian, I want every scrap of evidence. If somebody finds a new coin that hasn't been found before with an inscription on it, I want to know about it. If somebody digs up a new scroll or papyrus in the sands of Egypt, I want to see what's going on there because it may help me to understand that very opaque world of the first century. So I do not believe, even though I'm a a, a Christian and I believe in the Bible and all that. I do not believe that the New Testament gives us the only information that we need. We need all the information we can to get a sense of the period so that we know what people were thinking and how it all worked. So I'm very grateful to them for the splendid work that they did in producing these new editions. But along with that, there was the constant sense throughout their work of saying, well, we know what's in the Bible. That's the boring thing that boring people have in the church. And we read it since we were kids in the King James Version. And that's, that's the stuff which gave us all the problems that we have with the church. And so we're now going to give you the really exciting stuff, the really dramatic, countercultural, engaging stuff like Thomas. And that's going to be so much more exciting and worthwhile. These are the voices from the margins. We live in an era, don't we, where the very phrase voices from the margins makes you think, oh yes, those are the ones we ought to listen to. That's what our whole political mindset tells us. And so they produce Thomas and they talk a lot about Q. Some of you won't know, won't have ever heard of Q. Others of you will have heard far too much about it. Um, (laughs) Q is the hypothetical source that many scholars for the last hundred and more years have reckoned lies behind the material that Matthew and Luke have in common. Matthew and Luke have so much material in common that many people have said, instead of them getting it from one another, they probably both got it from a common source. Call it Q because that stands for the German Quelle, which means source. And there are now critical editions of Q. It's a wonderful thing to produce a critical edition of a document that doesn't exist. It may have existed. Um, Many of my colleagues claim the right to be agnostic about things that I passionately believe in, like the resurrection of Jesus. I claim the right to be agnostic about something that many of them passionately believe in, namely the existence of Q. That's source for the goose and source for the gander. So the, the wonderful new critical editions, but they've always had this agenda of let's find something other than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and maybe that'll give us the sort of Jesus that'll be really exciting and that we can do business with. My third general comment about the Jesus Seminar has to do with their method of analysis and voting, which I think is now widely regarded across the discipline of New Testament studies as full of flaws. First, the analysis of the sayings into shorter and shorter elements as though you could vote on them separately is very suspect. That's not how things get circulated in an oral culture. I'll come back to that later. But then the way they voted on them And remember, this wasn't just for fun. This was so that they could produce this 
color-coded edition which would tell America what Jesus really said, the way they voted on them was by weighted average, like a student in a, a, a university getting different grades and then having a weighted average so that you get an, an eventual number grade or letter grade or whatever. So that the red and the pink and the gray and the black were added up and they had mathematical formulae for how you would score these. But they actually tell you in their flagship book, The Five Gospels, what they've done with the votes and what often happened, and there are several occasions where you can see that this has happened because they've told you the scores, is that over 50% of the Jesus seminar would vote either red or pink. In other words, they would say Jesus either definitely said it or pretty likely said it. But then if about 35% voted black, the weighted average would come out gray. Now, an insider to the Jesus Seminar, Marcus Borg has said this to me many times, would say, well, grey means that maybe it's not black, maybe Jesus did say it. But the average person looking at that colour-coded spectrum would see red or pink, yeah, we may be getting there, grey or black, probably not. And the colour-coding and the way the voting went just doesn't tell people what actually happened underneath. And it never allows for the fact that all scholarly debate about evidence like this works with a larger assumed hypothesis, a picture of what Jesus might have actually been doing. They actually had a picture like that themselves, but they never really let on. They always pretended that what they were doing in a sort of a positivistic fashion was simply coming to each scrap of evidence, looking at it neutrally and objectively, voting on it, and then, at the end of the day, seeing what jigsaw pieces they'd got left and what sort of a picture you could make with them. In fact, the process ran the other way. Now, the the fourth general comment about them is that I've no problem whatever about them going public with their results. Um, One or two people in the Jesus Seminar have replied to some of my criticisms of them and said that I was really objecting because they were telling the public and going into newsprint and so on. That's complete misrepresentation. I've never objected. Uh, I, I do television and radio and stuff myself. I believe in getting the message out to the public. The problem is that they have made these grandiose and pretentious claims about we are the scholars telling you what the scholars think without any indication that in fact there are major disagreements even within the seminar itself and there are major disagreements between the seminar and most mainstream other New Testament scholars and as I say we're not talking about necessarily paid up church New Testament scholars at all we're talking about people across the board Jewish and agnostic and atheist Catholic and Protestant but then perhaps at the heart of it and this is, this is the, the, the sort of central thing that I want to say about it that the Jesus seminar really did begin with an assumed picture of Jesus which they then ran at the evidence and weighted the evidence in the light of that picture rather than doing what they always claimed to do which was this neutral study which then would turn into a picture. They began with a picture of Jesus as quote a traveling sage and wonder worker one who was laconic and didn't talk a whole lot and certainly didn't talk about himself in the first person, one who didn't quote the Old Testament, so that often they say this saying includes an Old Testament quotation, therefore it can't be by Jesus, which I think, if you know anything about people who led movements in the first century Palestine, they always quoted the Old Testament, that's what they did. 
Jesus, there Jesus never spoke about a coming judgment. He never went in for any of that apocalyptic stuff. The Jesus seminars, Jesus is resolutely the other end of the scale to Albert Schweitzer. And even though there are problems with Schweitzer, that's always going to be difficult. And they have this picture, and it starts to emerge as you read the literature, a picture of apocalyptic and judgment, which is to do with fundamentalist preaching in certain parts of America, people threatening you with hellfire and damnation unless you fit into their little schemes. And when you actually probe a bit deeper, you find that several of the Jesus Seminar are refugees from fundamentalism and still reacting against it. I can, as it were, look at this from the outside because in England, again, that's a problem we don't have. We don't have major fundamentalist churches like you do in America. So nor do we have the reaction against it. But in particular, they had this idea that the sayings of Jesus circulated independently in the early church without narrative frameworks, which I regard as deeply counterintuitive. The people of Palestine in the first century, as far as all that we know about them goes, were people who would tell stories. If something dramatic happened, if somebody came into town and did something unusual, they wouldn't just remember the one-liner that happened at the end of the story. They would tell the whole story, including any one-liners that came their way. But again and again, the Jesus seminars say, because this saying is embedded in a narrative of something that Jesus did, that means it can't have been something that circulated independently through from 30 till 50 or 60. Therefore, it can't actually go back to Jesus. It must have been made up later. And that just begs the question of what the early church was like. Which brings me to the larger set of issues that I have about uh, the way we look at Jesus. And I've left myself less time than I wanted, so I may go on slightly longer than I said. Um, and I promise there will be time for questions at some point this evening and certainly tomorrow. But one final thing about the Jesus Seminar. Their flagship volume was called The Five Gospels. Now, the word gospel means and meant in the first century good news. It was good news, and good news is about something that's happened. The Jesus Seminar managed to turn Jesus and the Gospels not into good news, but good advice, which is a very different thing. And actually, there's always a question as to whether the advice was that good once they finished with it. Their Jesus is one who offers quizzical comments on how you might live your life differently, rather than a Jesus who was saying or doing something which actually changed the way things were. So how to proceed? I want in the, in the second and shorter half of what I'm saying in this first lecture to talk just a little bit about the present-day pressures that we face, not only from movements like the Jesus Seminar, but uh, from other movements in our culture which shape how we approach the question of Jesus. And I've got uh, six of these, and I'm going to go through them quite quickly, one by one. The first one is that in our present swirling mix of cultures, whether you call it late modernity, post-modernity, or what, we have so many different pressures 
particularly from the late flowering of secularism, perhaps more in Britain than in America, I'm not quite sure, that many people have really no idea now of who Jesus could be because they have no idea of who anybody in history is. There's a a deep ignorance in my culture and I suspect in yours about really who belongs where in history. Just as many British people coming to America think that once they've landed at New York, they can rent a car and spend the afternoon driving to San Francisco and back again and have to learn that actually it's not quite that easy. Um, You can also tell stories about Americans arriving in London and, well, that's a whole other issue. Um, But people do the same with history. And there's a sort of sense that back there, there was George Washington and Alexander the Great and Genghis Khan and Jesus Christ and Abraham and Moses. and uh, So it's, it's a sort of a morass and people have no idea what's going on. And this results within the secularist culture that we live in with serious people who would be ashamed not to know a certain amount about nuclear physics or a certain amount about global politics or whatever, serious people who don't even know that Jesus really was a historical figure. I made a series, television series with the BBC a few years ago uh, called Son of God, and the man they chose to present the series was a BBC newsreader called Jeremy Bowen. I think when they showed the series in America, they took him out, because you don't know him over here, but he's well known on our screens. But Jeremy Bowen, who had worked in the Middle East as the BBC's religious affairs uh, Middle East correspondent for several years told me that when he came to make, to to do the front man stuff for this BBC series this was the first time that he'd realized that Jesus actually was a historical figure and virtually everybody knew that he was a historical figure in the business because as far as he was concerned up till then the question do you believe in Jesus was like for him the question do you believe in God, it was just a pure faith thing that you might or might not believe in him. The thought that he was actually historical, that never impinged. And so within that context where serious intelligent people are that badly informed, there's a huge pressure on to know what you can and can't say about Jesus. What about the popular religious culture of our day, second? Popular religious culture of our day, if you go into the major chain bookstores and look at the religion section, you may conceivably find something by Marcus Borg or Dominic Crossan or conceivably even myself, but you'll also find all sorts of other things about reincarnation, about odd syncretistic blends of Buddhism and Hinduism with little bits of Christianity thrown in, with all sorts of things about the voyage of religious self-discovery. Your culture is actually riddled with this even more than mine is at the moment. A sort of neo-gnosticism, the discovery of who I really am. For half of my life I thought I was this sort of person, and now I'm discovering the deep truth about who I really am inside. There's a lot of popular psychology tossed around in the middle of all of this, but a lot of it is actually deeply gnostic, finding the spark of life, of knowledge, of secret hidden wisdom within myself. And uh, and finding that it's a very exciting thing. I heard recently of a young woman who was hit by a car going down the street. And as she flew through the air before landing on the sidewalk, she said, I saw my life flash before my eyes. And it was really boring. And, (laughs) And, you know, a lot of people actually do have very boring lives. And to think that there might be a spark of something more meaningful inside me... 
that can give me a sense of identity. This is enormously powerful to people. And the point is this. Jesus is often called in at that point so that discovering Jesus is sort of a a symbol for discovering who I really am. And Jesus becomes the patron saint of this voyage of self-discovery. And some of that is going on in some of the scholarship that's out there. Meanwhile, a third pressure, which is at quite a different level, comes from this Jesus and Judaism thing. We've all learned in the last 50 years that the Holocaust in which 6 million Jews were killed by the Nazis is one of the most awful crimes against humanity that has ever been committed. It's not the only crime against humanity. We mustn't forget other genocides in Armenia, Rwanda, etc. But it stands there because it was such a powerful symbol of something that had gone wrong at the heart of Western culture that one of the greatest and most civilized nations the world had ever seen, the nation that produced Beethoven and Schweitzer and many others, could do this in cold blood. And we have all reacted against that, and we have seen, if we know anything about the study of the New Testament and Christian history, we have seen that many, many would-be Christians have contented themselves with saying, the Jews killed Jesus. And for hundreds of years in Christian history, that has turned round into saying, therefore, we will go and kill some Jews. Until finally it was done at such a large scale that everyone shrank back in horror. As a result, there has been an enormous pressure, almost a sort of a subterranean level, to produce a Jesus who fits so snugly into Judaism that there could be no real clash between him and the Judaism of his day. That is a real problem with the major book of Ed Sanders, where he is trying, I think, to make Jesus such a good Jew that no Pharisee would ever have had a quarrel with him. And many others have gone down that road, not only Geza Vermesh, but also my colleague Paula Fredrickson in Boston and so on. And we are now caught up in the next generation from that, the second post-Holocaust generation, that is on the one hand saying, anything that takes you down that route, we must watch out for and avoid, but is also saying, the Holocaust has been used to legitimate all sorts of things in the Middle East in the last generation. And that's a real problem, which my culture and yours wrestles with. But again, Jesus is in the middle there somewhere. And this this produces a pressure on us to say certain things about Jesus. The fourth pressure is the more broad brush one of what we broadly call the post-colonial world, post-modern, post-colonial world. That we know now that the big stories we used to tell about our Western culture going out to colonize the rest of the world to bring prosperity and religion and peace and freedom was a very, very self-serving story. And post-modernity and post-colonial culture has said, actually, we've got to deconstruct all those big stories. We've got to pull them apart. And sometimes the post-modern or post-colonial push in that direction has said Jesus was part of those big stories. The big colonial empires took Jesus with them. Therefore, we've got to ditch Jesus and his story as well as those big stories of empire. Other times they've said Jesus was an unwilling passenger in that colonial enterprise and what we've got to do is invoke Jesus as the great anti-imperialist. And so we reinvent Jesus, uh, the Jewish revolutionary against Rome or whatever it is. There are all sorts of problems with that, but this is in, in present Jesus scholarship and at a popular level very much a powerful pressure.
And the fifth thing is something that I meet in mainstream churches in America all the time, and in some churches in Britain, though not so much, which is a large-scale picture of how Jesus and the early church work as a historical package. And this is close to the Jesus Seminar's agenda. It runs something like this, the story that you hear again and again. I I once was speaking in a a large church, not very far from here, a few hundred miles south of here, uh, knowing that that church was likely to be one of the ones I was describing, but I hadn't been there before. And I gave a whole lecture on this, and they all came up to me after and said, yep, that's what we believe here. You got it right. So I I think I've been vindicated. It goes like this. Jesus was a teacher of religion and possibly social critique. He was a character charismatic kind of leader. He was executed by the authorities, not by the Jews. He was not bodily raised from the dead. His followers carried on his message of personal and social liberation, mostly by telling the stories that he had told and repeating his sayings, collecting them in documents which got lost, unfortunately. And then a sort of second-generation thing, the Gospels as we have them were written in a way which actually falsified the exciting message of Jesus and turned it into something more socially conformist or quiescent on the way to the great church, the established church which made its peace with the empire under Constantine, squelching the really exciting little stories about Jesus himself which we now can recover Although the great church, whether it's the the, the monolithic Catholicism or the monolithic Protestantism or whatever, tries to stop us. And this goes with the conspiracy theories about the Catholic Church trying to stop the Dead Sea Scrolls being published and all that kind of thing. And as a result now, it's our job to get in touch with those hidden voices uh, which weren't in the canon and which weren't in official Christianity in order to find different ways of being Christians. Perhaps half the mainline churches in the United States today believe something like this. And that's the context where the Jesus Seminar gets so much help and mileage. But in fact, it's a classic projection of a certain problem in 20th century not least American culture. I've heard the story again and again and again. My friend Marcus Borg is in print telling, telling his own story this way. He grew up in a little Midwest town in a very conservative Lutheran church. You were taught you had to believe the following 19 things and then you would be justified by faith and you'd go to heaven and you had to behave in certain ways, etc., etc. Then he grew up and went to seminary and discovered that there was a wider world out there the same time as he discovered source criticism of the Gospels and he hasn't looked back. And Marcus went through a classic pattern of losing his faith and rediscovering it. I know he wouldn't mind me telling you this story because we're we're good friends and we we laugh about it in a way. But it's, it's the story that so many Americans have gone through. And it's then a way of rediscovering some sort of faith which isn't like that faith that you had when you were a kid. And Marcus and that whole generation, the one thing they don't want is to go back into the little narrow world that they grew up in. And so they will find anything in the scholarly constructs that they can to prevent them having to go back there. They will find more exciting ways of being a Christian, supposedly. In fact, this sustains, I believe, a totally illegitimate process of doing history. It conveniently ignores all the sharp edges of Christianity and actually though it appears to underwrite a voyage of self-discovery 
in which the old rules don't apply, it may well only be hearing the echo of its own voice rather than actually doing anything seriously historically. That was the fifth pressure, the, the assumed big picture that many people have. It's a pressure on how we think about Jesus. And the sixth and last one is what happens within the churches themselves. The church often prefers the Jesus of the liturgy. My Jesus, the Jesus I know when I pray, the Jesus of pious devotion, the Jesus who we talk about in our prayer meetings and who we pray to or or through. And the church often is frightened of history. And actually, speaking for the C.S. Lewis Institute, and as somebody who owes perhaps more than I can say to C.S. Lewis's writings, I want to say there is one moment in his writings which which makes me shudder. In the middle of the Screwtape Letters, there is one letter where C.S. Lewis has Screwtape, the senior devil, saying to Wormwood, the junior devil, one of the great things you should do is encourage people to study the historical Jesus. Lewis actually thought this was nearly a diabolical thing because he said you'll get them off on all kinds of flaky and funny ideas and you'll distract them from the central message of the real Jesus, which was the forgiveness of sins and so on. It's the same thing that happens today when many people in the churches look at the Jesus seminar and so on and say, if that really is what the scholars are doing, well, we'll forget scholarship, thank you very much. We just won't do it. This is a big issue. And it was a big issue, I think, in a different guise perhaps, in the early church, because some of the great debates in the early church were concerned with the fact that Jesus is fully human as well as fully divine. And when you say that Jesus is the Son of God, there are many of the soundest teachers in the early church who would want to be very sure that you didn't mean that in a sense that he was a kind of a supernatural spaceman who never really touched down in terra firma. Christianity is committed to history. The creeds that we say in my church, at least every Sunday, include the fact that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. What is a second-rate Roman governor doing in my creed? I'll tell you. He is anchoring the Jesus whom I worship in first century history. We have to do that history. Partly because, as Kazeman said, if we don't, we'll be in deep trouble. But also because that is where the real Jesus is found. And it's always an exercise of faith. People sometimes try to protect Jesus from history. Remember what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane when somebody tried to protect Jesus. One of the strange but true things about Jesus is that he goes unprotected. That is part of who he is. And it's that Jesus, and I haven't left you any time for questions now, I'm sorry. Those of you who've heard me, those of you who've heard me lecture before may not be surprised, but I will leave some time for questions later. Taking out my issues never healed the 
They say we're 